Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. First off, I want to thank our Cook, Eat, Learn Culinary Medicine Program for today's breakfast. Secondly, want to call your attention to the code for today's Medical Grand Rounds CME credits. That's 4GKB. You just text that in. And next, to welcome Dr. Swenson to us as today's Medical Grand Rounds speaker. He is going to be introduced to us by Nicole Orzakowski. He has no conflicts of interest to declare. Nicole, as you know, is an assistant professor of medicine, the section chief in rheumatology, and the program director for the Rheumatology Fellowship, among so many other great things that she does. Nicole, come tell us about Dr. Swenson. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It is my uh, absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Steven Swenson as our Grand Round speaker today. He's a professor uh, at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and also medical director of their Office of Leadership and Organization Development, uh, which we heard a lot about last night at dinner, which is really amazing program. Um, he's a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Cambridge, Mass., where he's also the lead faculty for their Joy in Work initiative, and hence his talk today. Dr. Swenson earned his medical degree from the University of Wisconsin. He completed residency in radiology at Mayo Clinic and went on to do a thoracic radiology fellowship at the Brigham. He earned a master's degree in medical management from Carnegie Mellon University and is also a trained executive coach. Um, he served as chair of the Department of Radiology at Mayo Clinic, um, and during his tenure, the department was recognized as the number one radiology practice in the United States, as well as being the most patient-centered. He served as the director of their quality um, and safety um, at Mayo Clinic for five years. Dr. Swenson has been president of the Fleischner Society, which is an international multidisciplinary medical society dedicated to the diagnosis and treatment of diseases of the chest. He's also been president of the Society of Thoracic Radiology. He's been the principal investigator of two NIH grants. He's authored numerous books, um, book chapters, and 167 peer-reviewed articles. Dr. Swenson is dedicated to the development of thoughtful leaders who have the ability to nurture camaraderie and joy in work, which we are looking forward to hearing a lot more about today. So Dr. Swenson, thank you for being here and welcome. Thanks, Nicole. It's nice to get to know you and thanks for the honor of being here. Is this uh, projecting in the back? Pretty well? So I'd like to share a few thoughts with you about uh, join work, and maybe you're not ready to call it join work. We started calling it burnout, and that was kind of a downer, so then went to engagement, and now at our last uh, all-staff meeting, Dr. Noseworthy, our president, uh, neurologist, uh, started using the word joy. So it, it, joy is, um, you know, it's the engagement and, and uh, satisfaction and meaning that, that comes from the human needs we'll talk about. So this is Samuel Langley. Samuel Langley should led a team that should have built and flown the first plane ever. Uh, he had huge staff, a huge budget, everything that should have allowed him to and his team to fly the first plane. But instead, it was a couple of bicycle repair people who didn't have a budget, didn't have a staff, but they had a dream to fly. And, and that put them in position for success 
and for joy in work because their basic needs of camaraderie, of meaning and purpose, and some control or autonomy uh, were met. And, and so basically, a century later, we're looking at this opportunity in healthcare to fulfill our dreams to fly uh, with, with meeting these human needs. So this woman, post employee, is burned out. So 15, she's, she's dumping a box of letters. It was one of three caught in this YouTube video into a dumpster. About 10 to 15 percent of American workforce are disengaged. They're actively looking to derail the mission of their organization. Then about 65 to 70 percent of us uh, just show up. So Woody Allen said 80 percent of success is showing up. And, and so that's what three quarters of American workers do. They show up, they do the job description, they watch the clock, and they go home. And then what we aspire to is to be like Clay Matthews, who doesn't care what the job description is. He wants to get the job done enthusiastically and passionately. And I looked for a patriot, but I couldn't find anybody that was quite this exciting. So we had to stay in the Midwest for, for this one. So where are we at in American medicine today? We have an epidemic of physicians who are impaired. They're cynical, they're emotionally exhausted, they have feelings of inefficacy. And, and it's, a, it's a really sad tale. The numbers are going up in our country, about 10% in the last several years by our best measurements. And, and so here we have this systemic opportunity to improve uh, the care of our patients. A friend of mine I trained with several decades ago uh, ended up as a medical oncologist. And, and he described his work to me three years ago um, as a construction worker. He said, I go to work in the morning. There's a pile of boxes. And I take one box at a time, lift it up, put it on the truck. Take another box, lift it up, put it on the truck. Go home at the end of the day, have a drink or two. And I come back in the morning, do the same thing. So he left the profession um, several years ago. He was a gifted medical oncologist that I would have been honored to have him care for any uh, friend or family member. And his patients are at a loss for it, and, and, and so he is. He was burned out. He was cynical, emotionally exhausted, and he didn't think he was doing a good job anymore. Classic setup, and he, he wasn't able to flip it. So this is what uh, burnout looks like. It's a systemic issue that affects the experience of patients, the outcome of patient care, and the safety of patient care, and the productivity of staff, among other things. And so can you imagine this huge opportunity that a, uh, any medical center in this country has to substantially improve all those things for the people we serve including the people that serve our patients. So it's a systemic issue, a huge opportunity to create value for uh, our country, and, and um, we need to address it. And it's contagious. You may have seen that in different parts of your organization. We've seen it in ours, where there's a little 
infection of burnout and cynicism and emotional exhaustion and it catches. And people have studied this. So the reason to look at this opportunity is not for the business case. It's for the authentic caring for of the people, the colleagues with whom we work. But there's a business case for it. So there's a business case for um, improving burnout because you improve patient care and you improve productivity and decrease turnover, solid business case. And there's a solid business case for addressing the drivers of burnout, which are basically waste variation and defect of care and inefficiencies in our practice and workflow. So there's a business case for addressing drivers and burnout and we should do it even if we didn't care about the colleagues with whom we work because it's going to help the organization be better off financially. But the, the reason to do it is the reason you're looking at it also is because we care about the people we work with and we care about uh, the quality and of care and the experience of care and the safety of care for uh, patients and families. So what I'd like to share with you is, is a evidence-based, validated approach to uh, reducing burnout and growing engagement and satisfaction of staff or joint work. It's not the complete answer, but Mayo Clinic numbers are going down at about the same rate as national numbers are going up. Our numbers are about two-thirds of the uh, national average. And we've, we've um, test-driven and worked with all that I'll share with you. So it's validated and it's, it's rooted in the sociology and the psychology uh, um, literature, organizational behavior literature for it. See, basically we start with two groups of measurement. The first measurement, was we measure the performance of every frontline leader. More about that later. And then we also measure, of all 64,000 of us, we measure satisfaction, engagement, and directly measure burnout. So a composite of three different measures of all 64,000 staff, including our 4,100 docs and scientists. Then six actions I'll share with you that are focused on these three human needs and with a result in improvement in, in what we're trying to affect, the, the care of patients. So these are the six um, actions, starting with leaders, organizational design, commensality, the drivers of burnout, a unique driver of burnout in healthcare, second victims, and then the last on purpose is personal resilience. All these are shared responsibilities, not just the organization, it's not just the leaders, it's not just the frontline practicing physicians and scientists, but it's, it's, uh, it's a shared responsibility at each of these levels. So the first and one of the most important is uh, how leaders interact with staff. So this is Martha Lacey. She's the chair of hematology at Mayo Clinic and she's an exemplar in this space. So maybe, I think it was four years ago, she took over as chair of hematology, and hematology burnout rates were uh, basically the worst they, uh, at Mayo Clinic. They were high, satisfaction was low, the t and, and she'll, she flipped those numbers within 18 months. And she moved, she, she did two things. First of all, she took care of herself. 
She chairs hematology and she works point eight. And so we, she had, the organization gave her the flexibility and the culture gave her the flexibility to say, I want to work point eight so I can spend time with my two daughters, more time with them, and have time to do pottery. So she took care of herself emotionally and psychologically and had a work-life balance that was appropriate for her at this time. And then as a leader, she basically uh, practiced participative management with collaborative action plans. She went to every member of her department, the nurses, the NPPAs, all the hematologists, says, what brings you joy in work? What saps that joy in work? What are the pebbles in your shoes? And then she worked collaboratively, not doing it for them, but with them to eradicate the uh, inefficiencies and the frustrations that they could deal with on a local level and communicated bigger ones up the ladder. And, and so she flipped the feeling in that de department or division um, from the docks feeling like they were employees and construction workers and victims to feeling like they were architects instead of construction workers and champions and in control of their life. So, so instead of having, so she flipped it by, by saying we can control our fate in partnership with the institution and in partnership with the Department of Medicine and the, the numbers now are among the best at Mayo Clinic um, four years later. So Nick Seibert, uh, this was published in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago, um, is a researcher who used a micrometer to measure the signature size of Fortune 500 presidents and CEOs. And he looked for a relationship between the size of the signature and the uh, productivity and the success of the companies. Found a relationship. What do you think it was? The bigger the signature, the more likely budgets were to be overspent, <laughs> market share decreasing, and margins uh, narrower. So part of the key to success is hiring doctors with small signatures. <laughs> well, we actually, let's see if this is not going. We actually measure signature size at Mayo Clinic. There we go. Um, through um, our annual staff survey. So we, we have an annual staff survey. We, we um, have about 78% of our staff complete it, all 64,000. Every October, we just are getting the results now for this year. And embedded in that are all the questions about burnout and satisfaction and engagement for staff, but there are nine questions we use that every physician and scientist uh, answers about his or her local leader that include five behaviors that we know are related to better joy and work, satisfaction engagement, and inversely related to burnout for those sections. And this is what Martha Lacey did. These are the five behaviors. The first is appreciation. I appreciate what you did today for our group, for this patient. Thank you. The second behavior, and, and so the, the, I've got a sock drawer at home that's not nearly as neat or colorful as this, but I've got a dozen or so letters in it from patients and colleagues Dr. Noseworthy, Dr. Cortez, fast leaders in the Mayo Clinic, they're notes that were written to me thanking me for some work I did. And I'll keep those until I die. So appreciation makes a huge difference that's genuine, 
and regular and, and authentic. And, and so appreciation of that first behavior. The second paper, behavior is I listen to you. What are your ideas? And let's work together as a group collectively to solve these problems. The third behavior is I communicate transparently. Here's everything that Dr. Lacey knows about hematology and the group solves the issues together. And so the, so the staff is engaged as partners and architects, not as construction workers. The fourth behavior is I take an interest in your career. What do you want to be doing five years from now? Let's work together so you can move that K award into an R award. And, and just two weeks ago, I, uh, in one of my leadership development programs that I lead, uh, a chair of a major division of surgery in Rochester told the story about uh, he had come in uh, just recently uh, after this surgeon had made rounds on a Saturday morning and then met with him after the rounds to uh, help him with his career. So they, he, it was basically uh, an effort to take an hour to review his curriculum vitae and his um, bibliography to write the letter for promotion to professor. And, and so uh, Dr. Smith <coughs> called up and said, what kind of coffee do you want? And he, he bought a Starbucks coffee, met with this uh, uh, surgeon after rounds to help write this letter for promotion, and he cried. The surgeon had tears in his eyes. He said, I, I can't believe you're taking your time on Saturday, buy me a cup of coffee to help me with my career. And, and this is camaraderie, this is that fourth behavior is powerful for building this team and immunizing us from burnout. And the fifth behavior that we measure and manage to is um, inclusiveness. So anybody know who this woman is? Yeah, J.K. Rowling. So what's her real name? It's Joanne. So why, why do they put J.K. Rowling on the book covers? Well, the publisher said there aren't any teenage boys in New York City or London who would buy a Harry Potter book if it was written by a woman. So we have a long way to go on our planet for inclusiveness, right? And it, but there's nothing stopping us in all of our departments and divisions and work units and care units from being inclusive regardless of genome or phenome or religion or ethnicity and it makes a difference and we measure it and we coach to it and we develop to it and if leaders can't do well on those five behaviors we know we're not doing our best for patients and we move them back to something they're good at taking care of patients so we actually this is a bell curve from last year of all of the performance of our chairs on those five behaviors through the eyes of their staff and the bottom of that curve, they need some help. And so we do whatever we can to, to um, help them be successful uh, as local leaders. But if they can't, we get them out of there because they're, they're, they have a major impact on joint work and burnout in patient care. So that, that's the first measurement and it's critical. So that's, that's the leader piece and we have to be deliberate about measuring performance and we have to be deliberate about making sure that our leaders are prepared to 
help our patients and help the colleagues who uh, care for them. How we design our organizations, how we make decisions, how we select leaders uh, also makes a difference in burnout. So this research out of Newcastle, England, a few years ago, what single thing can you do to a cow to increase her milk productivity by 240 liters of milk a year? Right? Give her a name and use the name. Well, guess what? The same thing helps with human beings. And it not only do you get more milk productivity, you get better patient experience and safety and teamwork. It's basically, if you, it, there's a whole field of social intelligence and emotional intelligence. And these are the dividends of a highly so, socially and emotionally intelligent leader and team members, including reducing burnout, including re increased productivity, and team effectiveness, fun at work. And so um, we actually measure emotional intelligence, assess it for all of our medical students. I just did this last week at Mayo. And for all staff before we hire them. So we have a three-year period uh, before a senior associate consultant becomes a consultant. And during that, those three years, we onboard and do everything we can to make sure we have the right cultural fit for our uh, physician scientist staff. And that includes 360s. It includes 12 hours of professionalism, includes high fidelity simulation center, uh, experiences for communication to everything, everybody from LGBT uh, communities to uh, uh, Muslims to African Americans so that we can make all of our patients from last year we saw patients in 152 different countries, have them all feel comfortable and engaged. So at the end of the second year, everyone gets an emotional and intelligence assessment. Not, it's not pass-fail, but it's to help them reflect how they work with other colleagues. And uh, because it's a team sport, and, and if they don't play well with others, then we don't want them on our staff. And then at the end of three years, we make a mutual decision about that fit. But emotional intelligence clearly relates to patient safety, team effectiveness. Most Sentinel events in this country are still from communication and handoffs and interpersonal things, not technical things. And so we need people that can work well with others. It also relates to uh, burnout. So emotional intelligence relates to burnout and empathy relates to burnout. A couple years ago, I, I led a, a group of uh, 50 leaders from the NHS in England. And the leader of this group uh, was a woman that uh, told a story about her son who had glomerulonephritis and then went through a kidney transplant. And the kidney worked fine, the hospitalization went well without any medication errors or readmissions or complications. But this is, these are the seven words she used to describe her experience uh, for that transplant. And so it wasn't the best possible care because it wasn't the best possible experience. And without optimal love or kindness, you actually can measure different outcomes. Wounds don't heal as fast if patients don't feel uh, that the team loved them or was kind to them. And so how, what does that have to do with burnout? Well, it, it's basically back at you. So the more 
empathetic and kind that physicians are in that relationship, the privileged relationship with patients, it comes back at us to improve our satisfaction, engagement, productivity, and it lowers burnout and exhaustion from a joyful, loving, caring, unrushed visit with patients. So that relationship, we have to bring that joy back that we've driven out of our system systematically from the first day of medical school. So pre-med students, even though they work pretty hard, their, their um, emotional and, and, and psychological quality is higher than other pre-med students, than, than other college students. So we start with it. We, they aren't maladjusted, <laughs> but we drive that out of them uh, in the years of medical school and residency, so the burnout rate, um, when we're done with our systematic squeezing the joy out of them, between 40 and 90%. We systematically do that. We do that across the OECD countries. It's not unique to America. Uh, and, and then we don't make it any better once we get out of our fellowships and residencies. Gallup surveyed uh, several hundred thousand people in 155 different countries and, and found that basically the answer was the same in all 155 countries about the most, um, what brought them happiness. And the answer was that, that human beings across the planet gave them was meaningful work. It wasn't money. And so there's something that's, that's built in us that, that that wants this meaning and, and, and purpose. Adam Grant's a researcher down at Wharton. And he did, he's done a number of interesting studies, including this one. This is a simple one. He basically had two signs, change one word on them, that he put by, and his team put by uh, hand sanitizer dispensers in hospitals. One sign said, use of hand hygiene prevents you from catching diseases. And the other sign, other half of the sign said, use of hand sanitizer prevents patients from catching diseases. Huge difference in the amount of sanitizer used. And when we were reminded that of patients and our purpose, we pumped the hand sanitizer machine in extra time. It wasn't our own self-interest. Did the study twice, same results. And so we, we, we have this system that blurs some lines and judgment that encourages us to do things that are dissonant with our values that brought us into medicine. So in, in radiology, if you look at you know, the incentives in, in emergency departments, um, at least a third of the head CTs on kids in this country who are more susceptible to radiation and leukemia and are, are for, for low impact head trauma uh, shouldn't be done. But we incent emergency docs across the country by patient satisfaction and by productivity to get these head CTs that the PCARN rule would have us never do. We incent them to give antibiotics to ear infections and conditions that don't need it, and we, we incent them to give narcotics when, when we would need it by productivity or by patient satisfaction. So that creates this dissonance, and it's one of the drivers of burnout that we systemically have in our country. 
if you, if you look at all the research on intrinsic and extrinsic drivers and motivations, the extrinsic um, don't help. Money doesn't come to the top of the list uh, unless we feel like we're being treated unfairly. And, and in fact, productivity models are probably a driver of burnout. There's some good research that, uh, that supports that because it, it, it creates this dissonance with the values that we have for um, the altruistic uh, goodness of, of caring for the patients. If you take people who have donated blood for years and start paying them to donate blood, they stop donating blood. It takes the meaning and purpose out of it. Then it's a transactional exchange of money for goods instead of a gift. Dramelsky did a survey of uh, uh, several hundred thousand people in 55 different companies and asked them what, what would cause you to go the extra mile, to do the extra work, to, to, to the discretionary activity. And, and these were the choices they gave them. You know, was it being recognized? Was it intrinsic desire to do a good job? Money and benefits have an impact. The top of the list was camaraderie. And the dead last on the list was money. We're not motivated by, to, to, by more money in the long term for what we need to do as organizations. But we are for camaraderie and the people we work with and having each other's back and caring for other people. So how we design our organizations and work together <coughs> makes a difference and it's something we should attend to and, and be careful about with uh, how we motivate or try to motivate or incent colleagues. I love the word commensality. Commensality um, means having a, sharing a meal with someone. And the research, um, much of it's done with firefighters who spend a lot of time making meals together and eating meals together. And commensality, like camaraderie, drives high performance in teams, joy in work, engagement. It, it, it was the top, it was the number one reason that people were more likely to, to uh, uh, practice organizational citizenship behavior, which is basically discretionary work, going the extra mile, even though your job description didn't tell you to. And so we, Colin West is an internist at Mayo, uh, and his team has done two randomized control trials with Mayo Clinic doctors in the Department of Medicine, and, and they were so successful, one's published, one's in press, um, that having time together to visit about good stories and professionalism and mentorship um, improved meaning and work, decreased the characteristics of burnout, including emotional exhaustion and social isolation. The, the results are so dramatic that now with these compass groups, he calls them colleagues meeting to promote and sustain satisfaction, we, we offer uh, uh, any self-forming group of six to eight docs, could be multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, whatever, uh, $20 uh, a piece to buy breakfast, lunch, dinner together a couple times a month for as long as they want because we care about each other and we know it'll make a difference in their resilience 
to these forces of, uh, of, of burnout. So commensality. So here's, here's where the real meat of the opportunities gets to look at what are the drivers of burnout and, um, and then how can we you know, address those one at a time. And, and the, main, the, the main force here at local levels, uh, that is you know, departments of hematology, uh, intensive care unit teams, ED teams, is this participative management with collaborative action planning where the leader in the group or a surrogate leader asks us, what are the pebbles in your shoes? What are your frust daily frustrations? What brings you joy in work? And then locally, without you know, Dartmouth-Hitchcock or the AMA or CMS, uh, taking those pebbles out one at a time. We, we, we found, we've been doing work like this for over a decade, uh, that um, at least half of the real frustrations can be addressed locally. There are organizational issues that need to be addressed with EHRs and so on, and I'll get to those in a minute, but much of what we can do is, is locally. And we find that the numbers start to shift even before improvements and frustrations are made because just the inherent act of working together <coughs> with colleagues and a message from leaders that we care about you and let's see if we can make things better uh, is therapeutic in and of itself. Still need results long term. But. And so it's the idea of stopping to swap mosquitoes and starting to drain the swamps with fixing processes that are broken or putting processes in place that, uh, that where, where there were none. And so we, we've studied this with 217 units. We've had improvements in morale and teamwork and handoffs. And then most recently, four years ago, when we started work with Dr. Lacey in, in hematology, we looked at 20 units and just focused on physicians. The, the first groups were all the staff in the, in the units. And for the, the, the units that we uh, looked at that involved about 400 physicians, we, over a period of a year, we moved the uh, burnout numbers. The median movement was 11 points. We, we've published this work. Uh, so, so we know just this simple act of, of participative management with collaborative action planning, moving colleagues to feeling like they're, they're construction workers to architects and actually fixing frustrations uh, works. It's not the whole thing, but it's part of this uh, whole uh, process. So the EHR. That's the big gorilla, right? And, and so that's a driver. We aren't going to get rid of the EHR, and we can't meditate it away. Um, but, we, but we can um, sculpt it so it, it runs smoother. And so we, I like the idea of pointing to czar. And, and so this is the way we approach it as Mayo. We relentlessly focus on, the given we have to have an EHR, we're going totally to epic next year, so we'll have to get some lessons from you. Um, but the, the, so the first thing the czar does is says, uh, for every process that docs are involved with, the care team involved with, do we really need to do this? Does it improve patient safety? Does it create value for patients anyway? Or is it regulatory? And if it isn't, then stop doing it. Um, and then the second is, if we have to do it, then let's make it as efficient as possible decrease those 4,000 mouse clicks that average physicians do every day. So, so make it as efficient as possible, decrease the mouse clicks. And the third thing is if we have to do it, we've made it as efficient as possible, is 
who needs to do it on the care team? Is it the doc, or could it be a clerk, or a nurse, or MP? So have all colleagues in the care team practice at the top of their license, and so you still got Epic, but you but you can make sure that what you're doing is uh, has the best possible workflow, and um, you know you probably saw this terrible report by Christine Sinsky, who's a practicing internist in Iowa and the VP for AMA for physician. Uh, satisfaction, for in the ambulatory setting, what they found in the study, for every hour of face-to-face -face time with a patient, two hours of clerical work with paper or computers for every hour of face time. Now, if that's not going to burn you out, so, so there, there are ways to mitigate that, and, and the czar approach is part of that, uh, that opportunity. <laughs> you ever feel like that? So one of the big drivers of burnout is loss of control. You feel like, you feel like victims. And, and so this is research we've done at Mayo. Tate Shanafelt led it. Basically, this job crafting idea. So within, so what, how flexible can we be with um, how we spend our hours in a given week? And what Tate and colleagues found that up to about 20% of your time, if you can do something that is really meaningful to you, teaching, or researching, or quality improvement work, or a, um, a usual interstitial pneumonia, if you're a pulmonologist, whatever you have a passion for, if you, or uh, research, 20% um, of the time, there's a huge dividend for uh, resilience and immunity to burnout by having this job crafting to be able to, uh, to, to have some control every week and some variety in, in your day-to-day's activities. Workload is another uh, big driver of burnout. And we've published research, again, from Mayo with Tate uh, and Colin and, and Lottie Derby, that um, if, if colleagues have the opportunity without stigma to reduce their FTE, uh, their burnout goes down. Not surprising, but, but we should be able, as organizations, to say, uh, we, let's have a conversation about how, how much, where, and when you want to do your work, and then can we be nimble? Can we be flexible so that um, uh, we can um, decrease uh, one of these drivers of burnout? When I was chair of radiology, 20 years ago now, we, this is 1996. This is the first year that we did a million exams in radiology just in Rochester. And this, this patient from New Orleans, um, lovely lady from New Orleans, was our, uh, that millionth exam and, and, and happened to be in CT. And these are all the <laughs> colleagues that were involved in her care. And so we realized that for, if, even if we were 99.9999% reliable, we'd still harm two patients a week. So we put together a, a, a internal collaborative. Uh, Roger Risar, who was a senior fellow at IHI, part of Mayo Clinic Health System, um, helped us out. Um, and Roger gave me this picture from the Oktoberfest last year. And he, he, he told me he didn't drink the whole thing. <laughs> so, what, so Roger helped us with this. And um, he, what he taught me and us is that improvement work that's team-based and patient-centered is a gateway drug to fulfillment and engagement. So after nine months of 
this collaborative work on reliability, the radiology techs and physicists and nurses and administrators and radiologists gave him a standing ovation. We never do that at Mayo Clinic. But they rose to their feet to thank him. And they rose to the feet because they were so proud to be part of an effort to improve our care. It brought me, it was, the, it was their meaning and purpose that they weren't just employees. They were part of, they were doing, they have, we aspire to do what Paul Batalden, a Dartmouth uh, uh, professor who's now back in Minnesota taught us is that we have two jobs at Mayo Clinic, to do our work and to improve our work. And the inherent process of improving our work builds camaraderie and it builds, uh, builds joy. So one of the projects, so on, the, on these two slides are 30, are 43,000 names of Mayo Clinic colleagues who in their own free time with no financial incentive and no requirements became bronze, silver, gold fellows in our quality academy and um, to, to do these two jobs. We give them a 75 cent pin for their name tag and they're so proud of it. I've had dozens of people come up to me I've never met before, at least I remember, showing me their pin and telling me their story. We started this when I was director for quality. And, and so it's engaging uh, colleagues in, in this improvement work. One of the uh, um, projects was a lean project to look at our throughput on our 22 magnets at the time. It took us nine months, we saved seven minutes per appointment, which was times seven by t 10 appointments a day is an hour a day. You fill that appointment and you get uh, $4.1 million to the bottom line. Well, Hugh Smith was a cardiologist who was head of uh, Mayo at the time, said, good work of your team, but uh, can't you do better? So overnight, we doubled throughput. <laughs> and once you figure out the basics, you, you can... <laughs> it took us a while, but toes out works better. And I know there's some psychiatrists here. We can double bill for group therapy with this. <laughs> So the driver piece, no matter how much granola you eat and resilience you have, you've you got to address the drivers of burnout. And some of them are local, some of them are organizational, but we need to take care of the drivers before, uh, if, if we want to prevent the headache. So second victims is the, the next piece. Uh, this is a unique driver in healthcare, and uh, the first victims are the patients that we harm. Uh, and, and their families and friends. And the second victims are uh, the doctors, nurses, social workers, pharmacists involved in that care. This is Kimberly Hyatt. Uh, she was involved in the uh, death of an eight-month-old when she, by mistake, administered 1.4 grams instead of 144 milligrams of calcium chloride. 24-year career, no major medical errors of consequence. Competent, conscientious, hardworking. This happens. It's a systems issue. Several months later, she was dead of suicide as a second victim. And so part of what we need to look at, and suicide rate among physicians, uh, for women physicians, it's 2.3 times higher than the rest of the population. For men, it's 1.4 times higher than the rest of the population. It's not all related to burnout, but, but it's, it's something that we have to look out for and be ready to look at. Marine, past president of the IHI, 
taught us that we shouldn't waste any will. And there's plenty of will every time we harm a patient or see some uh, part of our practice that could be better. Let's use that will to improve it for the patients, families, and for us. And we need to look out for each other. <laughs> Except for the psychologists and psychiatrists in this room, this study shows that uh, Instagram, use of Instagram filters may be better at predicting burnout or depression than, um, than us. And it's the Inkwell uh, filter on Instagram filters that has a 70% correlation with. So, we, so we're often in the best position to see someone who's withdrawn, become cynical, and, uh, and they need either our help or um, commensality, camaraderie, or they need professional help or other kind of programs. And we've got to work on the stigma and get colleagues the help they need when they need it. And so last is resilience. And, and so the, the, the key is we, organizations often make the mistake of first deal, going to individual resilience. And then what are doctors, what's the message to doctors? Well, it's your problem. You just haven't, you're not resilient enough for the system instead of looking at the systemic issues that burn out 54% of docs. So, so I, the idea is we have to learn to surf what we can't um, eradicate. So that's the EHRs and all the other things that happen in our days. And so our resilience helps us be better surfers. And it's basically keeping cortisol levels and C-reactive protein and fibrinogen levels lower um, because th this shortens, there's large longitudinal studies, stress on the job with less control, you have lower, higher mortality rates. So, and so that's, that's the big picture. So we have a program with 12 highly, uh, habits of highly healthy uh, living um, that we share with all 64,000 staff virtually with, with month by month and includes everything from laughter. We have a laughter yoga class on Fridays. <laughs> All of these are evidence-based, they work, but they, they don't work for everybody. So I'm not, I'm not a laughter yoga kind of guy, but I walk by the room and I hear a lot of <laughs> laughter on there on Friday afternoon, I say, well, good for them. And, <laughs> yeah, gratitude, evidence-based, makes a difference, you can practice that. Sunlight makes a difference, melatonin levels. Nurses make fewer medication errors if they have you know, natural light on a uh, on, a, on a shift, patients with cholecystectomy get out of the hospital faster and need fewer narcotics. Movement makes a difference. Uh, walking on a regular basis may have the same effect as Prozac for mild depression. Uh, we, we studied this uh, at Mayo, and I, when we published it, the, the accuracy rate of radiologists went up in nodule detection and other detection uh, when you're walking on a treadmill at two miles an hour. Meditation works, changes the shape of your brain, and uh, napping works. Sleep works. Friends, family work. These are all programs that we, we try to promote with. Forgiveness is, is one of the habits. So basically, at, at the end of the day, Burnout is a depletion of the social, physical, and mental resources, and the resiliency programs, whether those, those 12 habits or something beyond, makes a difference to help people get better. And so, um, so I will close with um, that. These are the six um, uh, actions 
we start with measurement of leaders, measurement of staff, intervene to improve those, uh, the camaraderie, the meaning of work, the control that we have over our lives, and it makes a difference. It's not the complete answer, but we can start now, and, uh, and I applaud you for your work here and, and what you're looking to do. So um, thank you. Thank you. We'll take comments. And one first comment I'll give to you is it's good that you did all this background work as you're getting ready to institute EPIC there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll need it. <laughs> well, so that was a fantastic presentation of the evidence and the way you presented it. Thank you. Um, this is obviously uh, a journey. Uh, I'm curious about you know, how long it's taken and how, you know, your timeline, uh, uh, how long has it taken for you to get to this place? You know, what, how did you kick it off, So it is a journey. It, it never ends. This is the way that you should lead an organization should be to work with their, uh, all, all the staff. We started staff surveys back 25 years ago uh, for all staff. And, and each annual staff surveys. And so each time we had the survey back, then we'd expect the local leaders to respond to issues with teamwork or other things that came up, and we spent, we'd um, spend special resources attention to the bottom 10% in each of those categories. So we've had that going for two and a half decades. Um, the burnout piece, we didn't start, so then we did culture of safety, and that, when I was director of equality, we started, did surveyed all of our staff uh, with that, a separate survey, and now it's embedded in our um, all staff survey. And it's the same idea there. You, you, you Staff tell you that there are issues with efficiencies and frustrations and um, psychological safety and handoffs and communication. You go in, you listen to pebbles and chews, and then you fix them collaboratively with the nurses, social workers, techs, and, and doctors. Um, so it's the same core process of looking at drivers of a problem and then addressing them. The burnout piece we started six years ago where we measured it for the first time. Uh, for all staff, and then addressed it with the uh, physician groups to start with, with the same kind of process. Uh, it's focus groups, what's going on, teaching leaders how to lead those five behaviors, and, and we've had traction from all of those different areas, from the safety survey to the teamwork, and now most recently with the burnout. It's the same basic process. Th that's just one of the six actions, but the, the core is the leadership, uh, and listening and then collaboratively working. Yeah, fantastic presentation. And I even have Sharon Felton written that our turnout is highest among mid-career physicians. You know, if you're young, you just start out, if you're older, get ready to retire. So do you do, you do anything to target particularly mid-career physicians differently than other folks since they seem to be the most support? Yeah, so it's highest in mid and early career. and. Uh, uh, us, us old folks are <laughs> either, either we left to practice or, or we get it all figured out, I don't know. Um, so we, um, we have programs, uh, particularly resilience programs, and there are half a dozen things we do for our residents and, and fellows and medical students. But for the junior staff, um, the chairs are particularly attuned to making sure they have, they can do some uh, job um, sculpting and it, so it fits them. 
but, but this is, the approach is geared towards um, any generational, so we don't have a special program for millennials because the, 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 what we ask you as a millennial is what matters to you? What are the pebbles in your shoes? What brings you joy? And then we, so then it can be sculpted for individuals um, basically by listening. Um, so we don't have a, a track for baby boomers and millennials that, that's separate because the participative management, those five behaviors, um, what do you want to do for your career? That works for any generation. And then uh, flexibility and work works for any generation. And the, the answers aren't that different, but, um, but at least it sculpts it that way. It was interesting that you started out with a clinician leader who only worked 80%. Yeah. What does it say to you when you ask Ms. Trimble about creating jobs that people can do 100%? Well, I, I think that, that's a real important issue for, um, for our country. So culturally, I, I, I started off there a couple reasons. One, because she's a wonderful woman leader that's made a difference. And that a generation ago at Mayo, it, it wouldn't have been acceptable for any leader to be part-time. And now that's okay, and it's it's not. I think it's it's it, for 99% of it, it's stigmaless and not and not an issue. Um, I think that one of the big root cause drivers here is compensation. So, Uwe Reinhardt, you know, down the street here at Princeton, you know, renowned healthcare economist. The, the biggest difference, you know, why is um, Healthcare in this country, 18% of our GDP, which is twice per capita that we spend in any other OECD country, it's basically because we charge more for appointments and surgeries and CAT scans and big pharma. And is that sustainable? And, and are the income sustainable? And, and so people are making choices to either keep working harder and harder with the same amount of money, that's a driver of burnout, and others who are either either burned out or more insightful to their limits are saying, you know, I want to work 0.8, and and either use that 0.2 for research or 0.2 with my daughters or whatever. So, um, but but the system is is driving that, and, and 10,000 American citizens a day go on to uh, Medicare, right? And and so most uh, medical centers in this country lose money on Medicare. And so that's, and the commercial payers are moving more towards government pay. So that issue is not going away. The reimbursements are going down, and we have to find a way to deal with that. Frequently, the leadership of organizations are the old guard who remember the days of giants. <laughs> and how do you deal with the dichotomy of senior leaders who may have a very different feeling than the work you're doing with? The, the younger workforce or the mid-career workforce in the sense of how do you train your senior leaders? You mentioned you'll move them out if they're not the sensitive and uh, enlightened group. But there are dichotomous issues at times between what's happening at a senior leader level and what you're doing in leadership development programs or the work with others. How have you at Mayo dealt with that? So we, we everything we do, and we're successful a lot of the time, but not all the time. But the, the, the vision is for all staff to feel like we are leading the organization, not them. And so all of our physician leaders, so we're physician-led, all of our physicians still practice medicine. We partner with full-time administrators and in dyads or triads with nurses. Um, uh, and 
all of our physicians are selected by their own staff and then ratified by the institution. <laughs> and they all rotate. So you can't be chair of medicine, chair of rheumatology, chair of radiology, chair of surgery for more than eight years. All of our administrators rotate. So then the focus is more on the integrative group practice instead of cardiology. And the focus is more on the name on the front of the jersey than the back of the jersey because we have people in leadership positions that have, were selected because they have, they were set up for success because they have a high degree of social capital, which is, I think is probably the most important thing that leaders need to deliver. Social capital is the trust and interconnectedness of the people in the organization. And, and if you have a leader that's selected from within and the organization feels like it's us leading the organization instead of them, you know, 95% of, of hospitals in this country are led by administrators. That's fine. It's just harder for them to feel like the conductor of the orchestra has never played the violin. They've just studied it. So it, 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 and the, most of them do pretty well, but it's harder to do than if it's a practicing physician in that leadership position who's still doing epic, right? So, so thank you. Um, I just want to follow up on that comment about the 80%. And I, I think, you know, there's 80% of one person's job is not 80% of another person's job. And I think if one of the solutions that you suggest is that physicians should work 0.8, then maybe what you're really saying is that there ought to be a limit to the hours that attending physicians are expected to work. Rather than say, you should individually titrate your work, keeping in mind that, you know, I was 20,000 in debt, which took me 20 years to get to pay. People now are 300,000 in debt, and I don't know if they can pay it in 20 years. So, you know, you can't disregard that. And you can't really say you need to make a choice and just choose to have a more meaningful life with less money. The other thing is, if we talk about increasing numbers that are going to need Medicaid or Medicare with the baby boomers, we're going to need more doctors, not fewer doctors. So I think one of the things that I really struggle with, and I really enjoyed your talk, is that I think that the onus needs to be less on the individual to take care of themselves in terms of burnout and needs to be more on the workplace to create an environment where it's possible for people to do meaningful work. And when you say go to point eight and then you can use point two for research, what you're saying is do research for free. We'll pay you to see patients, and you can have a hobby of doing research as long as you get your own grants, pay for it yourself, do it on your own time. I don't think that that is sustainable, and I don't think that's an appropriate way to engage in the concept that innovation is going to happen on the basis of data and research. So you're absolutely right. I agree with you. So I'm, I would, I'm not recommending people go to point eight, but our research shows that if you go to point, if you're burned out, you go to point eight, your burnout goes away. Or is more likely to go away if you stay at point one or one point zero. So it's it's a coping strategy that people can do in a system that's broken. So you want to look at how can we address the systemic issues. Well, we, you know, at Dartmouth Hitchcock and Mayo, we can't address the hundred ninety thousand dollar debt that the average medical you know student has when they're done. So we so that's the country should address that or needs to. But what what can we do at our institutions? to balance us with this much money and this much work that needs to be done. And, and so there are organizational issues and then there are department issues and there are individuals. But 
the worst thing to do is say it's your problem because it's not your problem. Uh, you have a shared responsibility to take care of yourself, but most of the issues, it's this, if 54% of physicians in the country are burned out, it's a systemic issue. And, and so we've got to address those at the organizational leader department level and then individually have a role too. So. One last quick comment. Thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate it. Um, one, one of the things that you mentioned is how important an unrushed patient visit is for the patient experience. And, and for the doctor. And also the doctor yeah. experience. And uh, Dr. Poon, my section chief, and um, I have had just a week ago this conversation, and there's obviously institutional press pressures to, to process more patients and shorten patient visit time. And I'm sure it may affect the same discussions going on. Yep. And obviously the concerns, um, what about the importance of having an unrushed visit time to listen to patients? Is there a way or a magic to, to figure out what works <laughs> best and how to come to some, some, some solution of that dilemma? So, so there's not any magic secret powder. But so as we're all moving to integrated care teams with physicians and MPs and PAs and nurses and electronic environment and so on, there are ways that uh, groups at Mayo have been able to successfully maintain a superb patient experience without having to be the doctor all the time. And um, the doctor still leads those teams and, and so on. So I, so I think that's one leverage point is to say how can we work together on the highly emotionally and socially intelligent, empathetic care team to work to, for the best outcome for the patient. So the patient feels like it's on rust and the care team feels like it's on rust and everybody's got a compact about how they work together with that common goal. So it, that's, it's hard to do. We're, we're doing it, we have hundreds and hundreds of those care teams and some of them are thriving and have knocked on the park. A lot of them are struggling, but it, I think that's part of a new way we're going to have to work. Well, Dr. Swenson, thank you so much for such an important topic. I know there are a lot of people who Good. I, got, I don't need to broadcast it, though.